When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com slash governance. IBM, let's create. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Lady Bosses, and then an iHeartRadio podcast. I, I jump when that first little noise comes every time. <laughs> uh, welcome to Lady Bosses and Ben. I'm Ben, and we have a special co-host today, Jamie Geffen. Hi, thanks for having me. You're probably asking, where is Jesse Draper? Well, we were asking the same thing, but she's <laughs> stuck in the storms in Chicago and cannot make it to the podcast. So Jamie was kind enough, nice enough, sweet enough to come in and help co-host today. But we're going to jump right into it. We have our very first uh, Lady Boss guest of the day, Adam Callanan from Bottle Keeper. And you may be asking, this is Lady Bosses and Ben. He's not a lady. He's a guy. But for all you listeners out there, we had Adam in here because he has a story of bringing his business to Shark Tank that we thought, Jesse and myself and the team here at iHeart, thought you, all you lady bosses out there, may want to hear. Adam has insights to share. Adam, you have a great product. But we don't know anything about it. So for anybody out there listening, can you please explain what a bottle keeper is? I will, and, and I fully understand you can't see this on the radio. But I did bring some samples, including our very first prototype. What it is, effectively, is a stainless steel bottle that my cousin Matt, uh, who was trying diligently to enjoy a beer out of a red Solo cup, and it, you know, it gets warm and disgusting in a couple of minutes in any relative temperature. So I had this idea to take what is effectively an off-the-shelf water bottle cut it in half, line it with neoprene so he could take a beer bottle and put it inside, which is what that is. That is literally literally our first hacksawed in half prototype, vice grip marks included. Um, so from there, I brought you guys a couple of fun samples you can play with. Wow, it's a little squeaky there, but oh, it has yeah. improved significantly since uh, that first prototype. And I'm dropping all over the floor. It's not breakable. Yeah, <laughs> that's the, one of the significant benefits. So uh, it's come a long way since uh, 2013. It's like an advanced koozie. It's like a super duper ridiculous, I mean, koozie on steroids. Let's uh, let's get into some of the details of the product first, and then I want to bring in some of the Shark Tank ideas. Um, 
how long would my bottle of beer stay cold in a bottle keeper? Uh, in this first edition, we have a couple of models out. Yep. So in this this first edition, um, which is again kind of changed over a course of a number of years as we iterated with customer feedback and whatnot, up to about two hours. So it sort of depends. I mean, if you're in Phoenix, Arizona, in 140 degree heat, yeah. sitting at the pool, it's a little bit different. If you're, you know, sitting on on a beach in California, it's going to be a little bit different. But ideally, we're we're talking up to two hours to keep it cold. We do have another product that we launched in the end of last year called Bottle Keeper X, which is double walled vacuum insulated that will keep it cold for like six hours. If oh, wow. you really got to, you know, it shouldn't take you that you long get to crazy. drink a beer, though. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. I was going to say, be honest, six this hours. is this is all you know. This everything we do is based on customer feedback and and the data we get from our customers. So that right. product was driven by feedback of people that are going out on hikes and and they. You know that's the the use case is they they want to put a beer in a bottle and it be cold when they when they drink it at the end of their hike five hours later. So we we Makes do uh, we we do listen to them very diligently. Yeah, I mean it, it actually is it is really cool to look at here and also hold. So you come up years ago. The story is this: um, on a summer day, cousin Matt was sitting lazily on a beach with Uncle Van as Uncle Van's beautifully full push broom mustache was gently wavering in the sea breeze they began complaining about the warm beer simmering in our red solo cups there are few things that can kill your mood on a relaxing warm summer day they say but the taste of warm beer is definitely one of them so you come up and you have this this product that you believe in um that it's pretty obvious hey this this even the prototype like this could work like this is gonna be something and you decide to start a business based on this prototype it takes you then to Shark Tank, and we would know you best probably by seeing you on Shark Tank. Can you walk us through, starting at the beginning, the process of them get, uh, of deciding to go on Shark Tank, then being on Shark Tank, and now where you're at? Sure. Um, you know, to, to really get into specifics of like that whole process would take a full day worth of, of getting, getting through this, but the reality is we launched the product based on, you know, we use technology because technology is an amazing place now. I mean, with your business as a perfect example, you can build these amazing websites and companies um, online and you don't have to have any web development experience. I mean, our grandparents can literally build their own businesses online today. 10 or 15 years ago, you couldn't do that. It was a different story. So with this, we launched, uh, you know, a very simple one color, one size product, direct to consumer only, no retail, no distribution with the intent to be able to show the customer a unique experience. And have them want to come back and buy more. Um, so that happened in 2013. We launched on a crowdfunding campaign, which was a really, really good way uh, from my perspective, our perspective, uh, Matt Knight, to to prove that a customer would swipe their credit card and pay for this product before we went and spent a bunch of time and money building it. Because asking your family members what they think of it is not the same thing. Like that is not how you prove a true concept. So the crowdfunding was a great way for us to do that. And it worked really, really well. It was literally... The, the crowdfunding campaign, we use this hacked up version. If you know, looking at the pictures, you see these crazy vice grip marks and hacks all in. So um, from there, we shipped our first product in January of 2014, you know, fumbled along for six or eight months until Facebook launched a video ad platform. And that changed everything in the company because this is a visual product. You have to see it in action to understand what it is. Our brains look at it and it just says water. So that was our first real inflection point. We went from doing $2,000 of sales in a month to three months later, we were doing 80. I mean, it really hockey sick. So we, that happened. We doubled year over year for a couple of years in a row. And in 2015, we got contacted by a casting director at Shark Tank. So that was the beginning of the process for some. And now, again, we filmed in June of 2018. 
our episode aired in on November 25th, 2018. So there was a lot of time between that first contact point and the time for which we actually ended up on the show. The first season, um, you know, we went through the process. Everything went great. The, we had some scheduling conflicts with um, when the, the show needed to tape and when we could physically be in town because I was out of the country. And they, you know, for whatever reason, I just couldn't. They weren't okay with me just coming back for that period of time, which is totally fine. So I pushed it to the next season. And then the next season, you know, from what I recall, there were too many beer companies on the previous seasons. Then, you know, just the, these things just keep getting pushed and pushed and pushed. You know, they have, I want to say it's like 40,000 applicants a year. It's some insane number. So they have no shortage of like awesome companies to put on the show. So to pause you there, um, and I'm just getting an idea. At this point, your annual revenue is estimated at what? So at the when they first reach out to us in 2015, we which did- Which is three years after- which is yeah, two years after kind of concept. Okay. So in 2015, we did about a million and a half. So it's, that's great. I mean, we have we had at that point we had no team members, no employees. That was one of my major things going into it was to try to build a scalable business on technology that didn't require people to physically operate it outside of you know me and Matt from anywhere in the you know in the world where you had access to internet. Mm-hmm. So that was a that was a really important piece of that. So. Yeah, we did about a million and a half. So we're still relative. I mean, that's not nothing by any stretch of the imagination, but it's still relatively small. So that's part of the challenge when you look at valuations and going into a situation like Shark Tank. Like you're doing a million and a half in revenue, you know, maybe it's a $5 million company and you're going to get pushback on that pretty significantly. And how big was the company at this point? How many people? It was just Matt and I. It was just the two of you. Yeah. So going into 2016, now we're having the discussion again. Well, 2016, we did seven and a half million dollars. So we, again, so with no team, no, I mean, this is we were heavily leveraging automation and technology in a very personal way. I mean, our customers, we take their, their willingness to invest in us and our products very seriously. So it's, 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 it's extremely personal, but we had no team. I mean, it was just us. And, you know, there's a, I learned the hard way that that works to a point and then the wheels start falling off the bus. But the, that's a very different valuation and, and discussion and size of a company when you're doing one and a half million dollars versus doing seven and a half million dollars. I mean, so you had seven, seven hundred, seven hundred percent growth in one year. Then you're going on Shark Tank, where your valuation is incredibly important. Of course, yeah. How do you decide? So let's fast forward. Then you're on the show. You present your product. How did you get to the step of valuing a company that's growing that fast? Um. So how we got to it on the show was research. I mean, we went back through every episode from the previous season, from season nine, and we're very, very, very data heavy. So we, the numbers, you know, you have to take your, remove your emotion out of a lot of these, really all of these decisions and look at the numbers because they're the ones that, that's what really tells the story. So looking at the data of the other companies that had been on, we looked at how much revenue they had done, whether or not they were profitable, how much debt they had taken on or investors they had taken on. Um, where their valuation was, whether that they came in at, whether or not they did a deal. And if they did do a deal, what was the deal that got done and at what valuation? And we took that data over the course of the, you know, hundred or so companies that were on the show in the previous season and kind of found where we, you know, where we landed, which was, you know, good, bad, or indifferent is on kind of the highest end that that you could go just based on, again, the other companies that had gone on. You sort of max out at a valuation standpoint at about 20 to 25 million. So that's how we did it on the show. But we also had an investment bank that was giving us information as to what of a if we wanted to go sell the company today, this is actually what it would be worth. And that you actually saw that interaction on the show. 
it's interesting. I've always uh, wondered watching Shark Tank, like how legitimate those valuations are. You know, be, me too. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's always it's it's Is intriguing. It who yeah, who comes <laughs> up with them? Uh, who's backing it? Are you allowed to hire an investment bank to do it? I mean, these little startups, right? I mean, if my company went on there right now, I I, could, I don't have the funds to hire an investment bank to do that. Like, I would be losing money on the deal no matter what it, to to make. It. So I'd be pretty much throwing darts at a dartboard with blindfold on. Like, you I have no clue. But are you so? Are you the data person, or is your cousin the data person? Like, who? So we're we're all data people in different parts of the business. My responsibility is more on the front end with marketing and branding and Facebook advertising and doing all that stuff. And we, to be clear, we do now have a team of people right. that are way better at this stuff than I am. And but at that that's point. what they do. But at that point, yeah, yeah, it was when we looked at the valuation stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that's something that we just took a really long time to figure out. And to your point about the investment bank, we didn't go hire an investment bank. We had a, you know, investment banks love growing businesses. Mm-hmm. They want to help you. They want to give you you know, as much information as they can. So I've, we've had over the years, a number of discussions with uh, two different investment banks, more along the lines of if, you know, five or 10 or 20 years from now, if we want to sell the company, what are the things we need to be doing today to make that, you know, sort of get the most bang for our buck. And from that discussion, you know, we started a relationship with an investment bank that wants to be the bank that does that when, if, and when that were to happen. And as a result, they were able to give us, do a little bit of, you know, relatively simple analysis for them to say, well, these are the comparables in the market, just like buying a house. I mean, let's look at the other companies that are similar to yours and what that have sold in the last two years. And let's take their multiples, whether it's on, you know, earnings and EBITDA or whether it's on top line gross revenue. And that's, that's what we did. We looked at the most, the most recent comparable is Hydroflask, which sold about two years ago to Helen of Troy for more than four times their gross sales. Mm-hmm. So that's, that was the perfect ammunition and, and it worked amazingly on the show because it was just what it is. You, you can't say it's not that. I'm interested then. It w- was the bank, because the, you know at this point you guys had a good partnership. You're working alongside them. Were they in favor of you going on the Shark Tank? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the, to be clear, like the, depending on where you are in your business, the investment part is great. The strategic insight that you're getting from that, from the right sharks that have, are a good fit for your business, no question. There's tremendous value that can be derived from that. The exposure that you get, yeah, come on. I mean, that's, that is amazing. Our marketing director, uh, Mike Sembachen, who's brilliantly smart data like guy, um, did an analysis that he found it to be worth about $9 million in free advertising. And to a small business, that's an insane amount of money. Absolutely. In free customer acquisition. So let's fast forward then. So walk us through that day. Uh, You walk into Shark Tank. You propose your product. You put out your proposal on the table to the sharks. What happens? Um, I mean, what happened is a little bit of of what we expected to happen. I mean, you go in at a 20 million valuation. The the first thing they do is, you know, all sigh and scream and talk about how crazy that is and scoff. Yeah, exactly. And, And we fully expected that. Particularly, I mean, you know, this isn't a, a cancer therapy. This is a beer product. So I, we expected that completely. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so we knew that that was going to be a, a, a big hurdle. And the reality is what you, you know, I can't get into too much detail for lots of legal reasons, but, you know, you tape for 45 minutes to an hour. For us, it was about an hour. And that gets cut down to, you know, seven to 10 minutes mm-hmm. for, for the episode. So there's clearly there's a lot that goes on you didn't see. And, and with us, you know, they pushed back significantly on the valuation, even despite the revenue numbers we had. I mean, at that time that we were going in, we had trailing 12 months 
of $9 million in revenue that was profitable with no debt on the company, no investors. And it's, it's a profitable business, but still it's like, they just have a hard time with a, with big valuations. So we spent a lot of time talking about that. Um, once we, you know, finally got past that, which really came down to using the comparable with, you know, they didn't mention the name of the, the company on the show, but with the comparable at Hydroflask, um, we were able to move on and get into a lot more specific detail about the business, which fortunately is what you end up seeing on the episode. Who, who jumped on it? I'm assuming one of the sharks that invested, correct? Meaning? They, 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 two of them. Two of them? Yeah, did? So two we, of them did. Yeah, so, so Mark went out. I mean, we went in clearly with a strategy. Our yeah. strategy was to get Mark and Lori because based on what we could use from a strategic value standpoint inside as a company, they're the ones that made the most sense. Yeah. And that's so, who got, right? And that is who we ended up getting. But Mark went out almost, I mean, he went out early. Because of the because of the, you know the value because of which the, the risk yeah which <laughs> it's like okay well that kind of shot that right. but but our intent you know based on the information and data that we had about all the you know the hundred previous companies over the the previous season were that if you're going to get two of them you you're going to give up at least ten percent of the company yeah and so we we didn't want to do that by any stretch of the imagination but we had a, an expectation that if we were going to get the two of them that was going to be a likely reality so so you know we go in and Mark goes out. You know, then, you know, Mr. Wonderful does his pretty standard Mr. Wonderful thing and, you know, values a business that's doing $9 million and trailing 12 months at a two and a half or $3 million value, which yeah. is, you know, it's just what he does. It's like his thing. Um, but it was really, that was actually kind of an inflection point in the episode because that's what started the offers. Like that at least started the bidding process okay. because then you see A-Rod come in and sort of piggyback on top of it. And then, you know, Lori's kind of dipping her toe in and that really accelerated accelerated these things so so the final deal was a million dollar investment yeah so the final deal was so mark we got mark back in that was a, a kind of a fun twist at the end um the final deal was a million dollars for the two of them at five percent so each of them got two and a half percent mark and Lori. and the kicker which we had to do a little on the fly uh math um, was the royalty. We were not okay with royalty until we were there. And Just for saw, anybody out there listening, when you say royalty, you mean? Yeah, so we were we had agreed to pay each of them 75 cents per unit until they each got $1 million back. So so we were effectively paying $1.50 per unit up to $2 million as a royalty. So the kicker for us and why that doing that type of deal with the royalty made sense was because we were talking about 5% equity and not 10% equity. The equity is way more valuable than the royalty. And we run, you know, again, it is a, a profitable business. We have strong margins and we, you know, we could afford to do it. It wasn't ideal. We didn't want to do it, but it made sense given the fact that we were looking at a smaller uh, piece of equity that we were giving up. You're doing all of this on the fly. Can you imagine, I mean, you operate your own business. Can you imagine having Making this in front of decisions. you and saying, this is, this is probably the biggest decision that you've made to this point other than cutting a tin yeah. bottle in half to try to create a product you this is your biggest decision at this point and you have how long to agree or just or to agree or to deny the proposal or offer. Well, offer i mean you have you have seconds you have the biggest the, yeah, decision the, no it's a, it's a huge decision it's you know we were so prepared we had planned you know, for what we thought, we definitely didn't know that was going to happen, but we had planned for every scenario that we thought could possibly happen. So by the time, 
you know, based on the way that the episode had gone and the fact that we were getting the two people that we wanted at a lower equity, you know, giving up lower equity than we expected, you know, it was kind of a, we just turned to each other and Matt, it runs the back end of our business or all of our financials and inventory and the, the really super important stuff. Um, he knows, he knows what our numbers are. He, that's, that's what he does every day. So it was, it was a pretty easy decision at that point. To, he probably knew to the window, yeah. like where. Exactly. Be because, because the yes. royalty started higher. Right. If, if you remember from the episode, yeah. it started at $3 a unit and right. that, so that's, seems that's not fair. tenable. I mean, that's 10% of the cost, like the retail cost of the product. That That's, that doesn't work. It's, right. it's, uh, it just shows me too, which is good. I think the show would appreciate this. Um, if you did not go in, you're obviously an intelligent person. Uh, Matt's obviously an intelligent person. Uh, if you went into this unprepared or say you just came up with a really cool product that was really awesome, but you just had no business sense, the sharks literally would eat you alive. And they which do. I'm sure they do. I mean, you, they yeah. do. If you, if you, watch if you the see show. the show, yeah, it's the, the guy that aired before us on our episode, I mean, they destroyed that guy. Because he, you know, for, I don't know, for whatever reason, he just wasn't, didn't know this stuff as well. And his, his, you know, business had some issues with it and they, they sharked him. I mean, he had a, he had a rough time. So let's then fast forward to today. This deal is done. Uh, Mark Cuban and Lori uh, are now uh, 5% owners of your company. How has it gone? So I'll, I'll clarify that the deal you know, is ongoing. So that that's not finalized yet. It's, oh, okay. it's, yeah, it's an ongoing process. And again, I can't get into the specifics, but it's fine. Um, the, you know, the reality is since the episode aired and, and for us, we were really fortunate with the timing because our product, you know, very much is, is we do about half our revenue in the fourth quarter. And realistically we do about half a revenue in the last six or seven weeks of the year. So airing on November 25th, which is two days after black Friday and the day before cyber Monday, I mean, we could not have been Perfect. more fortunate. And I mean, that's just, yeah. you know, from our standpoint, that's just luck. I mean, yeah. you can't script that any better. So, so we were really, really fortunate. And, and our sales were already up, you know, almost double from the year prior. So, you know, we were sort of cranking on all cylinders and everything was working as we wanted it to. Our team is, is just epically talented. Um, so, but even with that, you know, upon the airing that Sunday night, our sales as of that Monday were up 300%. So, I mean, we, we had a huge jump that we expected we didn't you know you talk to other people that have been on the show and about their experience after the fact and try to take from that and apply it to your business but the reality is it's not it's never going to be the same because of the timing the products the way they're set up the way you're set up so you you kind of just take what you can and prepare for the worst um but the the beauty of the way people are consuming this content now versus you know eight years ago when they were in their second or third season is that now a lot of this content is, you know, it's DVR'd, it's streamed. So people, you don't just get this huge bump on the night that the episode airs and then it quickly tails off. I mean, we got a huge bump the night the episode aired and then it continued the next day and the next day and the next day. And through the entire, I mean, honestly, through probably December 15th, 20 plus percent of the sales on our direct-to-consumer site were still coming from Shark Tank. Insane. How, yeah. Just, uh, I'm interested... With a product that obviously takes a little bit of time to manufacture, you're going on the show, you know you're going to have a spike in sales. You don't really know what that spike is going to be. How do you build up your inventory? How did you plan ahead? Yeah, that's no question one of the hardest things. I mean, again, we could probably do a whole podcast on international manufacturing, but the 
we have a over the course of a number of years after with Matt specifically managing multiple manufacturers overseas comes with a an insane amount of complication. Every time you fix something at this one, it, something else, you know, gets changed at this other one. One company changes a little tweak in the cap and all of a sudden the cap doesn't fit the product from the other two. It's like all the stuff that comes with managing all these manufacturers. So about a year and a half ago, we moved to us what's called a sole source manufacturer, which is a U.S. based company that we technically now we buy buy the product from them. They have 300 boots on the ground overseas that that go and find the factories. They oversee the product from, I mean, all the way from sourcing raw materials through early stages of manufacturing, packaging, like all this stuff. They oversee all of it because we don't pay for it until you know we put a deposit down or whatnot, but we don't pay for it until 60 days after we receive it. So if there's problems with the product, like we're not paying for it. Um, so they have a tremendous incentive. We're very much on the same page with putting out high quality products. And because of our relationship with them, we actually got them to make, I want to say it was seven extra containers of product, five or seven extra containers of product that we didn't have to pay for until after the fact. So they, we basically got them to float $8 million worth of, uh, worth of, inventory that we could pull from as we needed i would say again either really great negotiation which is a lesson or luck or no. trust what was it no it was trust uh, it was trust 100 percent. it was trust we've been working with this company for a year and a half when they send us a bill we have 60 days to pay it and we pay it six days in we've done everything that we said we were going to do with them we have an amazing relationship with them and we have a mutual trust it, but it, to be clear, like that didn't happen overnight. That took a long time to get to that point. The we, we talked about it on on last week's episode of uh, Lady Bosses, but it's uh, the sourcing, shipping, manufacturing that oftentimes uh, becomes the biggest cog in a system. I'm, I'm, I want to kind of go into you called uh, you sole. Would you say it was called the sole sole source sole source? It, it, to explain that a little further, and then also. Um, is that a trend? I'm unfamiliar with, with that term. So is that a trend now in manufacturing? Does that increase the price per unit to a point where now you can't sell it? That's a great question. So, so yeah, so the concept of, of sole source is that if you, in order to get the volume that we need, and I'm sort of making these numbers up, let's say we need five separate manufacturers all making product all at the same time. Mm -hmm. For us to manage that as people that aren't experts in international manufacturing, it's a nightmare. And we learned that the hard way. And we were doing up to three. So instead of doing that, you use you go to one company. That company has an expertise in this. So they go to the overseas, wherever it is that you need to make your stuff, and they find the manufacturers that do these things. They put them through the ringer on quality control and on prototypes and all this stuff. Like we actually just brought on another manufacturer through that. So we just got a case of, of prototype product. There's all these little tweaks, but it's this company. That's their role to oversee that, to make sure that that stuff gets done correctly. Does that make sense? It does. So is there a level, for anybody out there listening, <clears throat> a lot of our listeners are starting their own small businesses. Uh, maybe they, they have a, a small business that's probably operating around a million dollars. Is there a certain amount of volume that makes yeah, this strategy that's where worth it? gets it? tricky. It, had we tried to go sole source three years ago, it wouldn't have been possible because okay. we wouldn't have been doing enough volume for a company like this to get interested. Because the challenge, you go to the question of, does it make it more expensive? Yeah, it makes it more expensive. Let's break that down. It gets more expensive because they're charging a margin, but it's a very reasonable margin. Mm -hmm. Let's say it's between 5 to 10%. The, the difference, though, is that they're able to go, instead of five separate factories, each going, and for us, sourcing stainless steel, 
they go and source stainless steel in one order for all five factories. So they, they accomplish this economy, economy of scale that reduces the cost of the raw material, okay. which actually offsets the margin they're charging. So, so this is crazy, but like going to them, we actually paid less per unit because of the economies of scale we achieved by sourcing raw materials in larger quantities. Would you advise a small business to look into this? No, absolutely. I mean, okay. if, if you can find a, and you know, there, the, the con this concept to your other point is not new. Yeah. Um, so there, there are certainly qu companies out there that will do this. I would just say that you're, you'll have a little bit of difficulty if you don't have the scale or if you cannot sell them on the concept that you're going to get to that scale relatively quickly. It's really interesting. Have you ever done any international manufacturing? I haven't, no. But it's, it's interesting because I know that, like you were saying, there's all these people that are starting up companies. and it, It's definitely something that people are researching and making sure that it makes sense. And yeah. obviously for you, you know, it made sense. And so once, so once you got all these orders, was there any downtime? Did, did the customer, the, did the consumer feel like, oh, you know, it, there was a delay in shipping? From or Shark you, Tank? Yes. November um, 27th. No. No. I mean, we had the product was on the ground in our fulfillment center. The teams were all trained up and ready to go. We had more than quintupled our customer service that's team. that's what happens a I mean, lot, There's right? all these things. Yeah, but these were the part in from the Shark Tank experience Shark Tank experience that probably sets us apart is that we were just, we were a more developed business. Like we didn't right. start two years ago. Like we've learned a lot of these lessons and you learn them the hard way. Right. In 2016, you were ready. why we started building a team is because I bottlenecked our growth by my lack of willingness to start hiring people. I mm. just didn't want to manage people. In my last company, we had lots of people and that's a long story. But as I a didn't want to do owner, that you, again. You but you like, get nervous to hire teams yeah, because you don't know until you know I what wanted, you need. Yeah, my wife, Katie and I were traveling. We were out of the country four plus months of the year because we could operate the business anywhere that right. there was internet. I mean, which today is in a lot of places. Yeah. So bringing people <laughs> on changes that. Absolutely. I mean, it can change that. Certainly you get into like distributed workforces, like that, that's a whole nother thing, sure. but I don't know how to do that. I mean, right. make it up, I guess. But so in 2016, we, I had to literally turn the sales off because when it, when you automate things, you can, I think, I believe that you can automate about 95% of stuff. And when you're doing a hundred orders a day or 50 orders a day, that 5% that you have to manually touch isn't a ton. Like you can manage that and still be doing the other things that are important for running the business, doing the Facebook ads or the photography or whatever that stuff is. But when you're doing a thousand orders a day, that 5% is two people's full-time jobs. Yeah. And that's what happened in 2016. We, you know, we had this huge explosion. Again, if you look about half our revenue comes in the fourth quarter, if we did seven and a half million dollars, more than three of that happened just in November and December. So wow. that's thousand, thousand plus orders a day. And I was the one managing that yeah. 5% and it just, it got out of control. And as a result of that, we did learn some lessons about being able to ship product in time and, We've we've learned a lot of these lessons the hard way. Well, yeah, you don't want to lose the interest. If people are buying it, you want to be able to well, of produce it because once yeah. there's a delay or yeah, it's really hard to get. Order, yeah, you don't get that customer back. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you burn them once and that's it. Yeah, I uh, I found out the hard way. In December of this year, the company that I operate, uh, twenty five percent of our sales this year happened in December. Yeah, right. This is our first year, so this is the first twelve months of oh, operating nice. our online business. 25% of sales. So all of a sudden, surprise. you know, surprise, <laughs> bang, boom, bomb. I'm ordering coffee from Uganda to try to get here in the next month because I have back orders. 
Um, you learn this as you go, and, and I say that only to do this. We, we have a theme. I don't know if, if anybody listening can pick up on this, um, but we have a theme on this podcast right now. It's where we have very successful, very smart people come in and sit here, and they go, we've just kind of made it up as we go, and we've failed along the way. And, 100%. And Absolutely. our, our <laughs> listeners are li- li- listening to this, emailing us going, are they serious? Do they mean this? Because I think that, that, that also can just be all talk. I mean, how many examples do you want? I got a lot of them. I mean, this is a great one. I, this is an awful story. <laughs> when the first version that we came out with just this stainless colored, it was one size. It was followed like the Model T. Keep it simple. That was it. And so that went on for a year. We literally sold one product in one color for a year. Early the next year, 2015, I guess it was, we start like, hey, maybe we want some colors because our customers are saying, hey, we really want colors. So we decide we're going to come out with five colors. Like, or no, it was that time it was only two colors, blue and red. And we have our factory. And again, we're manu- managing the factories. Matt specifically is managing the factories at this point. We have the factories, you know, add the paint and they're very, very specific. Clearly, this has to be completely lead free. I mean, this is a consumer product. There's all sorts of state and federal regulations for consumer products with paint and all this stuff. Like, there's there's no gray area. It's very black and white. We But we're super paranoid, so we have everything tested. And we get the product in, um, and we test the paint at a what is supposed to be a federally certified facility, and it comes back over the legal limit for lead. We have 5,000 units, and we've, we've reinvested every dollar. I mean- We didn't take paychecks for the first two years of operation. We did not pay ourselves. We were reinvesting 100% of what was coming into the company, which is how we did it without taking on investors or debt. So it's not like we could throw this product away and start over. Like, that's game over. So, and clearly we weren't going to ship that to customers for lots of legal and moral reasons. So we went to Home Depot. This is where it started, at least. We went to Home Depot and we bought, like, super industrial paint strippers. And we, in our garages in Phoenix and in LA, manually wow. stripped with like rubber gloves and, you know, lab coats and lab goggles, <laughs> seriously, and manually stripped All like 3,000 of these units. No. And then we had to, because you can't just like strip them, then they're all, you know, they're all like gooey and yeah. so then you have to wash them. And then you have to buff them because now all this like shine that's on the outside is not there anymore. So Matt created this like a lid that, we've changed this lid since the first version, but it's effectively like that, that had a bolt in the top of it that we could fit a drill to. And so a drill would spin this super fast. So we could just take a Brillo pad and go and just clean it out, grind it. Yeah. Like that. So we had my dad with the time semi retired was at Matt's shop in Phoenix, literally just like grinding bottle keepers all day, every day for, I don't know, two months. That's that's one of the best startup stories I've ever heard. Just so we could use and sell this product. Because it would have been, you couldn't lose it. Yeah, you couldn't lose all that money. The best part is we find out we move our um, testing facility like six months later. The next time we get an inventory order in, we move our testing facility and we use it as comparable. It had no lead. Wait. So it was the test. Moral of the story. (laughs) Always, always get a find a backup. Yeah, get get a a second second opinion opinion. when you're dealing with like things that are like catastrophically huge. You have to get a second opinion. Oh my God. But the moral of the story is that, and also <laughs> how great of a story is this to tell? Like that is an incredible. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. Now and that I, you're on I the have other literally side of pictures it, it's a great story. of like the cars pulled out of the garage and the whole garage floor lined with uh, with garbage bags, basically, and like just 
dozens and dozens because we could only do like 50 of them at a time because we didn't have sure. that much space. So like dozens, dozens of bottle keepers turned upside down like this so the stuff would run oh. down the bottom. Oh. <laughs> um, we can't skip over this because I think this is a good lesson I want to touch on is uh, as you're standing there looking into your garage of bottles tipped upside down, draining out, you have all of your money. Not maybe not all of your 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 worth, yeah, but company's all, money, yeah. yeah, all the company's money back invested into those bottles sitting in that garage. What is going through your mind? I mean, you just figure it out. You hack it together. You, this, this I mean, what happens? Did like, you still just, believe in it? <laughs> Absolutely, because at that point we were selling product. You know, this maybe this would have been a different story if this was like right at the beginning. And I mean, in our crowdfunding campaign, we sold I think a thousand units or something. If we did that. And we shipped those units and then like things didn't really happen or they weren't really working or whatever, like fine, maybe that's a different story. But this happens in 2014 and we're doing two or $3,000 a month, you know, which isn't, I guess, isn't nothing, but it's not much. And then Facebook changes their video ad platform. I shoot a video on, you know, with an off the shelf camera showing the product in action and you put that up in August when they launched the platform. In September, we do 10 grand and October, we do 30 grand. In November, we do 50 grand. In December, we do 60 grand in the first 10 days and completely sell out of product. So we went, I mean, we did $150,000 or so in the year, but 130 of that was like in November and, you know, the last three months of the year. So that was, that was the point where we were like, holy hell, this is actually a thing. Like now it's working. But even then it took eight months from the point that we launched to get to where the thing started working. You just have to test and test and tweak and tweak and test and test. Adam, your story is uh, one that I've really enjoyed. And I and I really do think um, sometimes we have people come on the podcast and we're like, ah, your product's okay. This is a cool deal, um, mostly because I think it's a great gift. Uh, sure. It's going to keep your beer uh, cold. Like I said, there's if we- There's a bottle opener on top. And there's a bottle opener. That's brilliant. <laughs> there's, Good there's work there. It's an all-in-one. Um, <laughs> so as I'm holding this, the as I'm holding this, it really is. It's it's a, a, a cooler- um, for your bottled beer. So if you have somebody that drinks bottled beer or anything bottled, I guess, ciders, sure. juice, whatever, um, this will keep it cold. Uh, Adam, before we let you go here, um, any advice to any – I, I, I really enjoy ending these segments with the opportunity for you, somebody that has built a successful business, um, with the ability to give some advice to the listeners who are either operating successful businesses or just getting started. Um, any advice for them? Um, yeah, I think one of the, the most valuable things that we've done relative to showing our customers a unique experience, which keeps them from wanting to go and buy it at other places, you know, through Amazon or competitive products or whatever, um, is personality. People, you know, we're all buying stuff online. We're doing it constantly. It's happening more and more and more every year. And it's, a, it has a tendency to be a very impersonal experience. And so if you can show your customer a personal experience with your, whether it's your voice, it's the brand's voice, maybe that's the same thing. In our case, it was. I was just being kind of like smirky, snarky, sarcastic guy. And that was, <laughs> became the Bottle Keeper brand voice. Um, if you can show that to the customer and show it to them in every point at which you touch them on the website, in your, you know, your Facebook marketing, keep it consistent, in your after um, purchase emails, like their order confirmations. A lot of these systems, whether it's Shopify or Magento or whatever, they have these template confirmations that come after and they're very impersonal. They look like everybody else's order template. Make it personal. You, there's all these things. One of the, one of the smartest things 
in hindsight um, that we did early on is I set up a an email that I personally wrote that goes out to every customer after they place an, an order. It goes out to them the next day. Now, clearly, I'm not manually writing out thousands and thousands of emails. but So it is automated, but it is personal. It's from the heart. It's a thank you. It's a we cannot believe that we've that it worked like this. We got to where we are. And it's because of you. You are the reason that this works. If we can help, if you have questions, if you have comments, if you have feedback, please how we grow. It, it means everything to us. And it comes from my personal email. It's in your voice. It's well, I mean, yeah, it's me. Yeah. I mean, no, it, it literally is. Yeah, and it has personal. a little picture of me on the bottom. Yeah. And it's not a built out template that has headers and footers and a bunch of images. Like it's just an email. And 100% of our customers respond to that email. And I personally get them and I personally read and respond to every single one of them because that is a, that is a personal link and connection that I can have with one of our customers. And most of the time, you know, 90% of the time it's, wow, that's so cool. I've never got an email from a founder of a company, you know, True. and it would be great. If, it would be great if you put an opener in the cap, it would be great if you put, uh, added a tether to the cap. Oh, so, so when I, you know, leave it right, you know, I put it in my bag, I don't lose it because I lost mine or whatever. Like, that sort of stuff. It would be great if it was powder coated. Like that is how we develop that product is based on feedback that I personally get from our customers. And it doesn't take a lot of time, but it's just touch your customers personally, reach out, communicate with them personally. A lot of these things, you know, you can, you can automate. You don't need to hire somebody to just manually, you know, hammer out on the typewriter, 47 letters. Make it personal from the bottle keeper boss himself if you want to find bottle keeper make sure you visit their website at bottlekeeper.com you can also uh hashtag them if you're using a bottle keeper keeper product uh at colder beer is better is the hashtag find them on facebook at the bottle keeper instagram at bottle keeper and twitter at the bottle keeper adam thank you for coming in thank you for talking about your product thank you for joining us on the lady bosses and ben podcast thank you so much for having me thank you The Relish is not your dad's sports network. It's a social video app that turns you into the broadcaster. The Relish is a female-founded company where the next generation of broadcasters, yes, including women, are sharing videos of their hot takes on trending sports news, playoff predictions, personal fan stories, even real-time game coverage. Whether you want to be the next Katie Nolan or are you just looking to watch the big game with fans like you, download the Relish app from the App Store now to sign up and tune in. Now back to you, Jamie, <laughs> the wonderful co-host who decided to come in here while Jesse is stuck in a snowstorm. I'll have to be honest. I know nothing about you, but I know that you have stories to tell. So, Jamie, I just kind of want to give you the floor to talk about yourself and to talk about why it is that you decided to come in to the Lady Boss Podcast. Okay. Well, um, my story began um, when I worked at Sony Pictures Television. I actually started as a temporary employee for the studio. I was an assistant to the head of special events, and um, I slowly worked my way up over a couple of years and um, eventually became the head of the special events and talent relations department at Sony Pictures Television, um, where I ran all of the television events, so launch parties, wrap parties, all the corporate events, meetings, retreats, those types of things. Uh, I was at Sony Pictures TV for about nine and a half years, uh, and I had great experiences there. Uh, Towards the end of my stay at the studio, I was getting a little bit antsy and realizing that there was more out there, and 
other companies planning big parties, doing different types of events, working for charities, doing other things. So I actually joined with another gentleman, Brian, who was my business partner, and we launched a company by the name of Your Bash. Uh, we launched it very quickly. I left Sony in November, and we launched our company within 30 days. Our website was up. Our photos were there. We we were both experienced event planners in our own areas. I, I worked for one studio. He worked for a different studio. But we did, both did very different things. I was in charge of all the logistics and the back end and the budgets and the clients and the marketing where he was the designer. And he was very, he was a brilliant designer. He could walk into a blank room and he could visualize a, a beautiful party. Um, so we had a lot of success. And we luckily, because of our both of our relationships where we worked, we um, had a lot of studios sign on to do events with us, and actually a lot of our first events were all the um, American Idol parties. Uh, we did, um, and American Idol was very new at the time, so we, it was all of the beginnings of American Idol, so we would do the top 12 parties, the finale parties, um, and a lot of different events for different studios. We also did personal events, weddings, um, social events, those types of things. So. We were together um, actually nine years. Nine seems to be my magic number. <laughs> um, and decided to part ways. He moved to Atlanta to continue his journey with designing and producing weddings. And I stayed here in L.A. and basically continued the business that we had started. But it was time for that business to get a rebrand and a fresh face. And so... Um, I did that, and I then launched Geffen Events, which is my own company, and that is two and a half years old now, and it's fantastic. Um, similar, we're doing, I'm doing a lot of studio and corporate events, but I'm also now able to pick and choose different charities that I want to work with. I do a lot of different charity galas, fundraisers, um, Halloween events, just basically it's kind of my way of giving back to the community from an event standpoint and bringing people together, bringing brands together. Um, I still also do a lot of social events too, weddings, bar mitzvahs, uh, you know, those types of things. So um, that's kind of my journey in a nutshell. Um, I definitely, <laughs> it's been a long journey to get to where I am. I'm, I love where I am now. I'm very happy with my business. I'm very proud of my business. It's, it's, everything I ever wanted it to be. So, how, how many employees now do you have? So that's that's a tricky question. Um, technically, uh, it's me and two others that are permanent employees. Um, but I have teams of people that, depending on the client. So if it's a if it's a design heavy event, I'll bring on certain designers that'll come on and design with the clients. I have a ton of incredible day of staff that freelance for me. So I, it's a very small company it's a boutique firm basically which is how i want it to be mm -hmm. uh, when people hire me they hire me and i want to keep it that way i've always wanted to be in the mix i there's a plenty of companies that do what i do there where you hire the company and you get the assistant the number yeah. two the number three and i just i never i never wanted it to be that way so i am a little picky with who i take on as a client but at the end of the day i think it's all about the personal touch and being involved from the beginning till the end. So, how many events are you doing? I usually do two to three a month. Okay. The we have a one of my my assistant actually is an event coordinator. Oh, okay. And uh, she was asking me the other day how she markets her company, right? Because there there isn't a lot 
other than word of mouth, is there ways that you market Geffen events to kind of get the word out there? Um, I will say that word of mouth is actually the best way. Um, it's most of my most of my event referrals come from past clients or people that I know through many different areas of my life. I tried marketing. I tried magazines. I tried I tried it all. I will tell you, you're not going to open up a magazine, a wedding magazine, and go, oh, I'm going to hire that wedding planner mm-hmm. because I like the picture. So for me, it's really been word of mouth. It's Instagram. It's social media. Um, you know, that's, I, I would say that. It's, it's a very visual business. So anything where you can show photos and, you know, tell the story. We've had a, it's, we've had a couple tech entrepreneurs in here. Mm-hmm. And we were asking them, you know, how they're marketing their company. Uh, because I think everybody's trying to figure it out right now, right? How do you reach out to millennials? It's shifted completely. It's shifted completely. Yeah. The, there was a trend that we've kind of dissected uh, in a very non-scientific way on the podcast. <laughs> and we feel like uh, we, if we want to be successful as marketeers, we have to start grassroots programs, word-of-mouth programs, even uh, to put that as uh, in front of social media. So social media actually takes a backseat to the the word of mouth, the grassroots marketing campaigns. Yes. Would you agree or d- disagree? As no, social I media would agree. Ma- I would agree. I would say, I mean, I take a lot of risks. I do some events where I don't take a fee because it's getting me out to the right people. Mm-hmm. It's getting me further down the road with making new relationships, being working with brands that I maybe never worked with before. I did a lot of that at the beginning. I mean, you kind of have to to get you want to have stuff on your resume, right? You want to say that you did this or you did that. And I've been very lucky in my career where I've I've been able to produce some really high-end and, you know, beautiful events that have given me my publicity, if that makes any sense. So in and of itself, like the social media or being in magazines, and that's kind of, you know, how I've gotten my publicity. But I, I, I did have somebody that was running my social media because, like you said, that was the way of the world. But... I agree now it's more about me being out there and talking to people and meeting people and constantly like trying to stay up on the new trends and the new venues and because events are so different now too. There's a perception of people don't throw these over the top like events as anymore like they used to. It's more, they're more calculated because it's more Mm. about getting the brand in the right, with the influencers and the, you know, in the right eyes and getting them to post pictures and. Really? You've seen that? I mean, that's a. A hundred percent. Interesting. Yeah. It's kind of sad. I missed it a great Gatsby. It is kind of sad. <laughs> that's what I think of when I think the of big great events. great Gatsby. What do we, yeah, that's, that's... That's what I think of when I think of big events. Great Gatsby. Uh, <laughs> you know, so for anybody out there listening, uh, how, as an event coordinator then, mm-hmm. what events are you accepting and what events are you turning down? You said you're obviously, you want to be a boutique firm. You want to have a hands-on touch. If somebody's out there listening going, I have a wedding coming up, or I have a bar mitzvah coming up, or I have a massive celebration coming up, what makes them fit into your criteria, or how do they, why would you fit into their criteria? Um, I think it's all about a relationship. I think you can tell in the first 10 minutes of a conversation if you're a good match with this person, and I think if, if you're going to be, for a wedding, for instance, if you're going to be talking to this person every day for the next year, you want to make sure that you have some some sort of rapport with that person. So whether that you can tell that immediately over the phone or whether that's sitting down and talking about this person's style and what their visions are. Because obviously before I send a contract or I contract with any client, I have a personal meeting with them. And we talk about sort of their overall goals and and ideas. And if that's something that I feel like I can put, you know, my brand on or I feel like I can 
create for them, then it's absolutely a great fit. If I feel like it's not really the right fit, I'm very honest and I'm happy to refer them to somebody that I feel may be a better fit. Um, because at the end of the day, you just, you don't, it, the process is long usually with planning an event and you don't want to be unhappy. You don't want them to be unhappy. And at the end of the day, you want them to walk into their event and say, wow, this is amazing and be happy. I have a 30th birthday coming up. After talking to me for the last 10 minutes, do I feel I like a fit? I would love to throw you a 30th birthday party. Uh, for anybody out there listening, how uh, would they find you to at least court you for a little bit, see if it's a good fit? So Geffen Events is the name of my company. Uh, my website is www.geffenevents.com. And my Instagram handle is at Geffen Events. And We're going to be... Instagram friends as of now. Perfect. <laughs> hey, uh, thank you so much uh, for of coming course. in. And, and I know it was short notice, uh, but you're thank obviously you. uh, very well qualified to sit in this seat and thank help you. me out today. So uh, I'm going to ask you to uh, help guide me because I need all the help I can get. Um, really, I, I'm kind of, you know, Adam said, I'm just trying to get all these entrepreneurs to admit that they're faking it because really I'm just faking <laughs> it. And I feel like if no. I can get them to, then I can say it confidently and nobody's going to question me. Uh, but we do have a really special guest up next, uh, somebody that you know, I do so know it's not well. weird if you guys talk as friends. No. Um, our lady boss of the week is Amy Morella from Hidden Garden Flowers. Hey, Amy. Hey, guys. How are you? Hi, Amy. Hi, Jamie. <laughs> we, uh, we obviously know that you two know each other. Uh, Jamie's already uh, mentioned that before. Amy, just to get this thing started, we have to be honest uh, because you've been great and you've taken some time away from a very special event. Where are you at right now? <laughs> right now I'm at my son's basketball game because I like to pretend I'm a stay-at-home mom with a full-time job. <laughs> so I just run from uh, – I literally came from Ojai from a walkthrough to drive all the way to North Hollywood to get to this basketball game in time so then I can get on the phone with you guys <laughs> in the middle of the basketball game. I know the so, feeling, girl. I know the feeling. Right? Make it happen. <laughs> of course. You don't want to no miss one, it. Yeah, no one knows the difference. The kids actually think that I'm a stay-at-home mom. Yep. Of course she'll be at the basketball game. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Jamie, you have a nine-year-old, right? I have a nine-year-old son, yep. And a lot of uh, our listeners, because of previous podcasts, Jesse's talked about it pretty openly. Uh, as a mom, you kind of just have to do it all, it seems like. Absolutely. Yeah. I was, I was at his assembly before I came here, and I had to run out to get here. So um, you just do it. You just make it work. <laughs> you do, right? No, and no one knows any different. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's something to laugh. I I hear you know, kind of laughing about this, but it's also just super impressive. I don't know. I think that's one of the reasons why we started the podcast is is to highlight uh, the journey uh, to success and 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 talk about the failures, but also just highlight the fact that you all are doing it all, and I'm 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 learning from that every episode. Uh, Amy, to get this thing started, uh, you are the owner of Hidden Garden Flowers. Can you tell our listeners what that is? Yes. Um, so I, I always say I own a flower shop and my friends always joke and say, why do you say it like that? It's not just a flower shop, <laughs> but I don't know what else to call it. Um, we do florals. We do anything that pertains to florals. So like daily orders, you know, I love you, happy birthday, anniversaries. Then we have our hotel accounts. So we do the lobbies of, of hotels like Beverly Hills Hotel and Hotel Bel Air and Waldorf Astoria. Um, and then it comes from country clubs. And then we do weddings. And then we also do social corporate functions. So any anything that touch flowers touch, we kind of participate in. So, and I've had it for 20 years, so it's been a long time. 
Don't um, skip over the small little event that you do, the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah, we do the Super Bowl. We leave oh, in yeah, that days. little thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, we leave on. This is our 11th Super Bowl, um, which is pretty cool. It's actually, I will say that's one of my most favorite ones that we do because one NFL, I have to be honest, is very cool to work for. Um, so, they, and they appreciate uh, they appreciate women owners. They appreciate the minority. You know, they, they're really great about it. So this is our 11th year that we've gone to every single Super Bowl, and we do what's called the tailgate party, which is the commissioner's party before the game. You have to have a ticket to get into the game, and you have to have an invite to get to the party. And I, it comes out to be, a, I think they say it's 10,000 people that, that go to the party. Um, and wow. then, yeah, it's really cool. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing event. Yeah, so, and we started 11 years ago in Arizona. And then the NFL after that year said, come next year, and then next year. And then they finally said, can you just do every single year? And we were like, we're in. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, so, Amy, when the NFL brings you on to do these parties, how do they how do they decide what to do? Is there a theme every year? Is it something that yeah. they give you? I know you're also a designer. You're not just you don't just work in a flower shop. So, do they give you <laughs> do they yeah. give you you know the lead on designing the event overall? No, we have. Um, there's a company called Party Planners West, which Jamie, I'm sure you're probably familiar with. Of course. And they um, they run the whole entire production, and they're the ones that actually brought us in originally. And then they go over the whole design, and they come up with the concept of what the overall looks going to be. And then they give us the lookbook um, of what the look is and sit down with me as far as what the floral is going to be. And then they let us kind of dictate what we're going to do for florals that complement the look of the rest of the party. So it's definitely a group effort. And, you know, Jamie, you're familiar with that. We of course. All, we all sit down. We powwow. We talk it out. You know, some people have ideas. And I'm like, that's a great idea. Let's throw that in and vice versa. Um, so, and every year is is ends up being a different color palette and theme and but the flow of the party has to remain the same to that many people but they they give us the information and we kind of work with what they've given us have the two of you worked together we have yeah you have yeah i wondered that. we've created magic <laughs> <laughs> of course uh, Absolutely. <laughs> uh, amy you know you have uh this business uh, built on flowers. And before we dig into trying to get as intimate and vulnerable as possible, why flowers? You know, I used to be in the music business. And um, I was in the music business out of college. I had friends that were in bands and I got a job and then I just kept kept going and going in it. And one day I told my boyfriend at the time, which is now my husband, um, I just like making flower arrangements for people. It makes people happy. And so he was like, so make flower arrangements. And I started making flower arrangements for everyone that we worked with in the music business at the time. And I kept getting a bunch of orders before I'd go to work. And then before you know it, my apartment at the time, my husband, my boyfriend then, um, I had it at 60 degrees and I had it filled with flowers <laughs> and bugs flying everywhere in the kitchen. And he was like, you need to move out. We can't do this. This is not working. <laughs> and so I said, all right. And I never worked in a flower shop before. So I um, found this space and I decided I was going to open up a, so to speak, flower shop with a zero um, idea of what I was doing. 
and I just did it. I just made it work. That's always my running joke. We'll make it work. It'll be fine. Yeah, it'll be like fine. That's what we say. We're event planners. It'll be great. Yeah. No problem. Yeah, we'll All right. And then we have to figure out how to do yeah. it. Yeah. Totally. They look at you and you're like, I wonder. They're like, okay. And you walk around and you're like, I have no idea what we're going to do, but hang yeah, on. Yeah, but it looks great. <laughs> You know, it, it does bring up the point, though, to all that. What's your differentiator? Like how, I mean, you have a flower shop in your house. There's a lot of flower shops out there, and your friends make fun of you because they say it's not just a flower shop. I know. What separates you? I mean, I, I guess this question could be to both of you. Uh, what separates you from, from the crowd to make your business scalable, larger, and more successful than most? And, and, and let's start with uh, Amy. That is a great question. Sometimes I, I know Jamie feels like you. Sometimes you wonder what does make me different. Um, I think maybe just the the idea that I'm always like we can do that. Like just always, always having a good attitude about it, being positive while we're doing something. I always feel like we can do it. We can do it. Don't worry. We got this. Um, and having that personality that keeps people moving all the time is really important. Um, because you want your team to feel like they have a strong leader behind them. And if they have a strong leader, then they'll do more for you. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. And I think that our product shows that we care. Like our service, our customer service is another big part. I think we, when we first started, we would gain more and more clients just because someone else gave bad customer service. It was like, if you just answered the phone, returned a phone call, sent a proposal on time, did what you said you were going to do, like, you, you won, you know? It's true. Um, and that was, that was a big part of it, too. So, attitude, good team, and customer service. Jamie, what about Agreed. you? Those are my favorite. Um, I would say I agree with all of that. And I, to, to further your point of the other people and the other people in the business, it's, it's interesting, and I'm sure, Amy, you get this, too, that people end up sometimes with you because they've already had a bad experience with someone else, and they're like, but we heard you were so much easier to work with and so much better, you know. So I feel like right. it, you're kind of sometimes we're thrown in to clean up the mess. So then it's kind of a double duty, right? So now you have to prove yourself, but you also have to prove that you were better than the other person for some reason. Right. So yeah. that happens a lot. But I, I agree. I think that I'm a very strong leader, but I also – never ask anybody on my team to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. So mm. that means I, I'll call up on the ladder. I'll hang the drape. I'll stay until four in the morning. I'll be the one to clean the bathroom. Like whatever it is, like I think that very much shows your team that you're a team player. You're in it with them. Yeah, absolutely. That. Yeah, they, they'll do more for you because they're like, she'll do it. I'll do it. Exactly. And having a relationship. And I would think that that, that shows through our work as well because we're all in it together and – you know, makes us successful. Yeah, definitely. Amy, but it hasn't always been success. There's been failures no. along the way. <laughs> we, we talk about so it many. often on here. Uh, can you, do you have any stories or any specific examples of, of failures that have led you to this point? Oh my gosh. Well, every, every year there's a new lesson. <laughs> um, but I would say the first five years of me starting, I mean, I joke, I cried myself to sleep, but I think I probably did. Um, because it was tough and it was hard and it was like always, you know, the, the financially it was, such, it was such a burden and how do you make this work, you know? And then the the next part of failure, you know, is, is I, I did start another company um, in the middle of this called Flourish, which is a DIY flower bar. 
And I, which I went to several times and I loved it. (laughs) I know everyone loved it, but you know, what's funny is the formula was a failure. The concept was great, but the formula to make the business work was a fail. Right. And as much as we tried to make it work and we kept going, you know, back and forth with the investors and, you know, and having the, um, you know, giving up the equity and taking more money. And at some point you have to like raise the white flag and just say, you know what, this isn't working. And, um, I didn't want to do that, but I, we needed to do it. Also for my sanity, I needed to do it. And what didn't Uh, work for you? For that? Could you be a little more specific? Yeah. What it really was, was the concept was great. You know, it was a DIY flower bar. People would come in, make their flower arrangements, but they were supposed to learn how to make them via the tutorials that were on the iPads on the station. Well, because it was connected to the Hidden Garden as well, a lot of our customers from the Hidden Garden would go to the store, and they were used to getting whatever they asked for. Everything was custom. So they would come in and say, I love that. That's really pretty, but I want to make it pink instead of yellow, and I want to add peonies instead of roses. And so before you know it, you had a designer that needed to be on the floor to help them design it because they weren't following the tutorial that was right in front of them. Sure. Then you needed to have a buyer that bought different flowers than all the recipes that we already have put together. So at that point, now we've added in two of the biggest it's costing components. you money. Yeah, the labor and the flowers. Um, and, and those were the two big parts that we had taken away from the DIY flower bar concept, and we put them back into the model. And as a result, the cost to do business was so high. And um, I felt like I was running a DIY hidden garden, which was exactly the opposite of what I wanted. Sure. Amy, just because uh, I'm just hearing this, would you say your the failure or the, the, the point of no return was when you decided to go against your original plan and bring in labor? If you would have stuck to the original idea of just saying, hey, sorry, you have to follow the iPad and this is what we have to offer, could you have made this work? Yes, you almost had to do it. I kind of go back to, and I know you've had um, Allie from Dry Bar on the, on the show before. I kind of have to go back to, like, her model. Like, you have to really stick to your guts. Like, when people walk in to get their hair blown out, this is what we do. We blow out hair. We don't do a bang trim. Sorry, the police are driving. Perfect. <laughs> we don't, we don't um, you know, we don't do bang trims. We don't do a little color touch-up. We, we just blow dry. That's what we do. So had we originally went out and said, this is what we do and owned that concept and not tried to make everybody happy, um, maybe, maybe that would have worked. Um, but I think we started to veer off course a lot. And then before you know it, it kind of got wild you, and you were DIY hidden garden and that was not the plan. But it was hard. I mean, I, I joke, I, I don't have my MBA, but I definitely paid for my MBA and in, mm-hmm. in opening that store. <laughs> um, real life experience. Uh, but now I can sit in front of, you know, investors. I could do a deck. I could do a presentation. Like I could do all of that and um pretty confident. Yeah. But so Amy, we, we like to I know you've got a game to get to. So we're gonna we're gonna respect okay. your time here. <laughs> Uh, but we love for all the listeners out there coming from all different age ranges, backgrounds, uh, et cetera. We love to end each kind of uh, segment with advice um, to entrepreneurs and lady bosses. Or, I mean, we have a, a pretty good male following as well. Anybody out there that's a boss, what's your advice to them? Mm-hmm. Keep at it. Don't give up. Sometimes the things that, like you, 
you know, you hear people say you got to take two steps backwards, take a step forward. Like, don't give up. If you really believe in something and you believe that you can do it, there's going to be obstacles in your way. But if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And I've always told myself that. And I, I think that's what kept, has kept me going forward all the time because it's hard to own your own business. It's hard to have employees. It's hard to succeed. But if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And that's why we do it. We like to challenge. So don't give up. Amy Morella, the owner of Hidden Garden Flowers. Go back, get back to that game. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You are welcome, guys. Good to talk to you. Bye, Amy. Thanks, guys. Bye, Jimmy. Bye. Jamie, today we've we've learned a couple different lessons that I've written down. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Adam from Bottlekeeper to- told us um, to keep the experience personal, right? As if you want to grow your business and differentiate yourself, you have to keep it personal. Uh, and as we've heard there with Amy, um, she says something very similar. She said customer service is what helped her scale her business. When somebody else would miss a call, she would answer it. And then she also said, as a leader out there, uh, keep at it. Don't give up. If you believe in something, continue to do it. Uh, I, I think those are little tokens for us to take. Absolutely. In a lot of aspects of life. Absolutely. Jamie Geffen from Geffen Events, <laughs> you are a great co-host. Thank, Thank you, you for, for stepping me. in here. No problem. Um, you're poised and collected, just like any lady boss would be. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you, everybody. And we will talk to you next week on Lady Bosses and Ben. Follow Lady Bosses and Ben on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to podcasts. iHeartRadio. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at Home Depot depot.com.